This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk. Welcome back to our viewers at home. Uh, the Twitter sphere is working quite hard, and we have a few questions from Singapore and China. We'll get to them later on. Uh, but I'd like to uh, uh, introduce you to our three distinguished panellists uh, who are going to take part in the second uh, slice of the discussion, which is about making maths relevant. Um, I would point out that if there are things left over from the first session, by all means bring them forward in this session and ask a different set of people uh, how they feel about those things. Um, So, um, a fairly uh, impressive group of people with us today. Charlie Strip has been teaching uh, maths in the state sector for 10 years, both in school and in an FE college. He is now uh, Director of the National Centre for Excellence in the Teaching of Mathematics and Chief Executive of MEI. He joined MEI in 2000 to set up a project that eventually became the National Further Mathematics Support Programme. He's also taught trainee teachers and delivered professional development courses for secondary and sixth form maths teachers. Obviously, he's an active member of the uh, the Mathematical Council for over 20 years and is currently on the council. Um, uh, and he became uh, director of the NCETM uh, whilst continuing as MEI's chief executive. So he has quite a lot to do, and I hope he's going to share some of his thoughts with us today. Um, Mark McCourt is the chief executive of Beluga Learning, an education technology company and chairman of the Teacher Development Trust. Formerly senior director at Tribal, the very large um, education organisation, Mark has... Ex- extensive experience in technology-enhanced learning across all age and ability groups. Having spent many years as the director at the National Centre for Excellence in Teaching and Mathematics, that comes up again and again, doesn't it? Um, Mark is an expert in all aspects of math teaching and learning and has been a driving force in raising standards in maths education. He's also been a school leader, an AST, an inspector and a teacher trainer. And then finally, closer to me, Dr Janet DeWild is the head of STEM at the Higher Education Academy, whose mission is to improve the student learning experience. She began her career as a professional engineer, followed by 17 years as an academic at Imperial College London. She moved into educational development at Heriot Watt, uh, then became executive manager of a pan-Scotland research initiative at the University of Edinburgh. At the HEA, she was author of the HEA Evidence to the House of Lords Inquiry on STEM Education, that seminal and uh, powerful inquiry. Uh, And currently, the team has a strategic project investigating mathematical and statistical skills in the disciplines and tackling transition. So I think all three of these people are bringing something really quite special to us today. So I shall ask Charlie to open up. Um, Again... Each one, of our, each one of our speakers will speak for five minutes. You will notice, of course, I let everybody drift over in the last one. Um, perhaps just a tad, if it's going well. OK. Well, good afternoon. Um, I've only got two slides, um, so I'm going to talk for most of the time. But I wanted to start with a bit of good news. So this is um, A-level mass entries in the UK over the last nine years. And A-level mass is growing very strongly um, you know, amongst, in fact, possibly the strongest of the mainstream A-level subjects. And we've also got a similar slide for further mass numbers, and they're growing even faster in terms of you know, the percentage of gains each year. Um, so that's a, b- a bit of very good news. But the, 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 I'd also like to give a note of caution that we're about to possibly change the structure of A-levels quite dramatically, 
And um, I'm a little bit concerned about whether these can be you know, preserved and extended when, when that happens. But um, you know, I think that, that there clearly is something good happening at the moment, and that more young people do want to study more mathematics post-16. It's not nearly enough, but there is something good there. Um, there's definitely, a, a, you know, thinking about you know, the mass that's needed for, for people going on to higher education employments, there's definitely a supply gap. So we have, um, there's the, somebody's already mentioned the Acme Mathematical Needs Report from 2009, and in there it identifies at that time that there were about 125,000 young people doing maths post-GCSE, level three, level, level three maths post-16, and in AHE there was a demand for about 330,000 young people doing that. There's a great big supply gap there. It was interesting that, um, um, I'm not sure, I can't remember the name of the person, but somebody over this side of the room earlier talked about, you know, what, what can we do to improve the level of maths of young people on, on undergraduate degree courses in social sciences? The very best thing that you could do is to say that you would like students to have studied maths post-16 before they go to university. And actually, I think there's a, there's a kind of honesty problem with higher education about this. And I know there are issues about selecting and recruiting universities and, and people being frightened of, of actually, you know, students not being able to, you know, not choosing their subject because they don't like maths. But um, I think that, you know, if you, want, if you want more people to do more maths, please ask for it. I think it's a very clear message. Um, we've got... Um, you know, a government that's very keen on, on promoting mathematics. Um, Michael Gove had a, an aspiration that within 10 years, the vast majority of young people will study maths right up to age 18. Um, there's a very large number of young people who get a grade C or above at GCSE, but just stop doing maths at age 16. And there have been um, various reports highlighting that, um, including there's, there's a, a report from Nuffield, for example, showing how, how bad we are relative to our, our industrial competitors in terms of participation in maths post-16. So we want to get more people to do more maths, um, now how do we do that? And actually, you know, why is it that, that they don't do more maths already post-16? I think that um, there's, a, there's a very big reason why they don't do more maths post-16 already, and it's called GCSE. Um, and I think that that's something that really does need to be thought about carefully. One of the issues is that um, we've had lots of, lots of talk earlier in, in, in the, the presentations about, about the importance of problem solving, and you know, problem solving is what maths is for. But I think that if you're a... Um, a 14 to 16 year old, then for many 14 to 16 year olds, what maths is for and what the, the, the sort of image that's presented to them by their schools about what maths is for is to get a grade C or above at GCSE. Now, that is the purpose of mathematics. And that is a serious problem for the image of the subject actually nationally in our culture. The, the stakes of that examination are so high, both for the teachers and for the students, that what goes on in the classroom is very severely distorted. And I think that, that's, a, that's a key thing that we need to try to address if we want to have this increased participation, better attitudes toward mathematics in our society. So, you know, some very you know, important points there. You know, GCSE, the way we examine things, though, know, there's, there's a kind of tension between you know, reliability and validity. You know, reliability is being able to, you know, get you know, consistent, you know, consistent grades for a paper. You know, different people mark the same work, they get the same, they get the same score. And, you know, mass assessments are very, very reliable. But validity is about assessing what it is you want people to be able to do, having done your course. And I think that actually we need much more validity and we should sacrifice some reliability to achieve that. There's also an issue when you talk about problem solving, that in maths, there are many, there's, the questions tend to be closed. Um, there's a lot of differentiation by task rather than by the outcome of the question. So, you know, for a difficult maths question, what makes it difficult is that only a few students can do it. Not that, not that all students can have a go and some can get some way towards the end of it. And that, again, is because we don't tend to ask open-ended questions in maths exams. 
part of the reason we don't do that, the cynicism you might say, is that they're hard to mark. Um, you know, so there, there, are, there are issues around that as well. So I think we need to make problem-solving understanding of the focus of mass education, you know, not getting through an examination. So you know, we've really got to have that culture. I think that yeah, there have been some, there's some good news. I mean, recent changes to the GCSE in the past um, two or three years, I think that um, there was quite a lot of resistance from teachers to start with, that the, there were more extended problems, more problem-solving on the, on the papers. Teachers and students were rather against it to start with, but that, that, that corner has been turned. I think now people actually think the GCSE math is better than it was because of the greater problem-solving problem emphasis. And, you know, that's um, possibly grounds for optimism. Um, OK, that's fine. We've got a new national curriculum and new GCSEs. Um, you know, these should be an opportunity for further improvement. We want to drive you know, more inspiring experience for, 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 for children in the classroom. Um, if we can do that, then hopefully more of them will choose maths post-16. We're going to have new pathways, new pathways being developed for level three maths post-16. There's interesting work going on there, some of which I'm involved in. But my fear is that um, if they're optional pathways, and I wouldn't want them to be compulsory, that there'll be marvellous qualifications available, but nobody will want to do them because their GCC experience has been so terrible. So I think, you know, let's hope that we can take the opportunity of, of the reforms that are happening in qualifications to, to do something about that and actually make maths more attractive for people to want to continue it rather than to say, you know, thank goodness that's over, I got my C, C grade or above. Or perhaps even worse, I didn't get a grade C and now with the school leaving age going up to 18 and because of, the, the, because of Wolf, I'm going to have to keep taking GCSE maths until I pass it. Um, you know, th th these things aren't good for the image of mathematics, I think. Anyway, thank you. Some thanks for our a, uh, maths development of people to take away with them, uh, along with Ofqual and DFE colleagues in the audience. Mark. Thank you. Uh, some very fortuitous things happened to me on my way into teaching. Um, firstly, I became a teacher by accident. Didn't mean it to happen at all. I'd had lots of jobs before teaching, and then a strange event happened, and I ended up in the classroom. That's fortuitous because it meant I arrived in the classroom without the usual fear that young entrants have. I also arrived in the classroom with the, free from the notion that government knows best, and that was very helpful for me. And during my first year as a teacher, two key events happened, which again were fortuitous. The first one, I was in a shop one day, and I realised that the girl stood in front of me was in my year 11 bottom set. And she was trying to buy some things from behind the counter, whatever it was, and she held out her hand, and she said to the chap behind the counter, what can I get for this? And she had no concept whatsoever of what was in her hand. The day before, I taught that girl how to collect like terms in algebraic expressions. <laughs> the other formative event that happened to me was in the form of Alex. Now, Alex was a troubled and difficult Year 11 boy, and he was always thrown out of his maths class, always in trouble. He'd failed every single maths test he ever took in his school career and was predicted to get a grade U. And one day I was teaching my lovely Year 11 class and he was thrown into my room. And I thought, I'll go and talk to this chap here and just uh, get a feel for him. And it sort of occurred to me, almost like an internal bet, I wonder if I can get this boy to get a grade C. It was March in Year 11, so the exams were in June. So I rang his father. His father was a nice guy. We talked about the, uh, the problem Alex was facing and agreed that every lunchtime he would come and see me and I would tutor him. And we did this every single day. I tutored him through Mar from March through to June, even in the holidays. Um, and August came and it was results day and Alex got a great D, but 
you know. Um, we were proud anyway and quite happy about that. Um, um, when I was asked to talk about making maths more relevant, the first thing that strikes me is, well, which part of the subjects are relevant? Well, all of it. And I wrote a, an article recently called Every Single Child Can Pass Mathematics. And I'm going to praise that here. Uh, I've had some interesting um, discussions with people on Twitter and via email. Uh, the, more, the more extreme email me so they're not seen. Um, except for the rarest of child, we're all born equal. And we have the same capacity to learn. Every single child on the day of their birth has it within them to leave the schooling system mathematically literate. Every single one of them. I don't mean they're going to be a Fields medalist. I don't mean they're going to be a maths genius. But every one of them is able to leave schooling with a level of mathematics that is practical and useful for them in their future lives. And one of the main reasons that half the population don't do that at the moment is because so many of us in education, so many people in education, are hell-bent on excusing low performance and setting the bar way too low. During their time at school each child undergoes around about 1,600 hours of instruction in mathematics. Now, let's take, just for argument, I know Charlie's been talking about grade C at GCSE, but let's take that, just for argument, that grade C, GCSE, mathematics, those topics are a level of success. Now, if you asked anyone, preferably not a maths teacher, if you asked anyone that after 1,600 hours of instruction, can you do these things, everybody would say, yes, of course you can. You must be able to do those things. Now, I know it's not very fashionable to say, but GCSE, mathematics, grade C, just is not taxing. So why is it that thousands of children find it so incredibly taxing? Why is it that so many of them don't get there? And the answer is that those 1,600 hours aren't doing the trick. Kids, don't, kids fail GCSE not because they can't do the things on the checklist. They fail GCSE because they haven't got a clue what's going on in the subject. At some point along the way, they just lose it. I've been writing a curriculum recently designed to take any learner from counting to calculus. And I think that with the right journey, every single child can do that by age 15. Maths isn't an arbitrary set of topics. It's a discipline founded on axioms. And like being able to play piano concerto, write a novel, bake a cake, you have to know the, the goods to be able to uh, produce the outcome. I can't say strongly enough, but if you don't have a full grasp of numerosity, place value, the base 10 system, arithmetic, and proportional reasoning, then you're cut off forever. Later on, once the fundamental elements are in place, you can experiment, you can be creative, you can use imagination, you can construct lots of new knowledge. Yet even though we know this, for some inexplicable reason, the curriculum and the teaching of it seems to ignore that these fundamental facts are non-negotiable. The curriculum, especially when enhanced by the inspection regime, puts mathematics as a set of skills on a fast-moving conveyor belt that can't be put into rewind and can't be stopped. The things that are on the curriculum are okay, but it just pays no attention to how we should master areas before moving on. I despair when I hear 15-year-olds trying to solve equations and they don't know anything about number. Somewhere along the line, the conveyor belt serves up, say, arithmetic, and they don't get it, and it just keeps going. And we serve up the next thing so they don't get that and they don't get it and they don't get the next thing. And teachers need to be brave. They need to ignore Ofsted and certain types of SMT. They need to know their kids. They need to know mathematics. And they need to, they need to know which children have and which children have not mastered mathematical concepts and then ensure that every single child does so. 
See, the thing is, it might seem scary, the curriculum powers on, and you might feel that you're being left behind. You might think that somebody will tell you off. But the point of education is to do what's right for the children in our care, not to please our masters. When children understand the basics, they'll accelerate through the rest of the stuff, so don't worry about it. Don't try and shoehorn children into, you must learn this because you're this age. And everyone blames everybody else. Secondary teachers blame primary teachers, and primary teachers blame policymakers, and blame Ofsted, and blame the mass community. But the truth is, it's our fault. Every one of us. We've all been complicit in allowing this kind of system to exist and allowing standards to be so dreadfully low. I always talk about maths as a giant Jenga. Uh, at the top, these blocks up here are the GCSE topics. But kids aren't failing GCSE because of these things here. They're failing because the blocks down the bottom are loose, wobbly, or completely missing. So the whole tower just tumbles. And we should all re feel really ashamed about that. So in terms of how do we make mathematics relevant, well, let's build a system where every single child passes mathematics. Thank you. Janet. Thank you very much, and thank you for the chance to uh, speak at this meeting. Um, from the Higher Education Academy, we wanted to look at this problem from the, obviously, from the higher education, the degree level angle. Um, let's see if I can make it do next. Sorry, right. So, um, we... Um, as I've as been said, I'm the head of STEM, and we realise that, that mathematics and statistical skills are fundamental tools for students in HE, not just within the STEM subjects, but social sciences and right across the board. And we understood, as many of you here understand, there's a clear need for the UK higher education sector to openly articulate to the secondary sector the true extent and needs for these skills within a wide range of degree subjects. So we decided to do a strategic project looking across a range of degree subjects. And this was following on the back of the SCORE report and the Nuffield reports, which looked at the mathematical content of uh, science degrees and sociology degrees, they, uh, not degrees, sorry, A-levels. They looked at things from the A-level mathematical assessment in A-levels, and we thought we'd look at it from the degree level. What level of maths and stats is required in degree programmes? How much uh, quantitative versus qualitative courses are there? And what is the understanding and perception of staff, students and lecturers? So we chose this range of subjects here. We looked at business, chemistry, computing, economics, geography, psychology and sociology as a range of subjects where we could look at what's happening in greater detail. We don't say we're going to come with a great answer. What we're saying from this project is we're going to add to the body of knowledge of this debate that we're having. So we've, so far we've done intensive literature reviews in those seven discipline areas, but I have to report the amount of literature there there is to review is not that great. So there isn't that much evidence on that sort of degree level and mathematical content. We've also been holding events, bringing teachers and lecturers, the secondary sector together with the tertiary sector and with other organisations. And they have been fascinating events and really uh, give us, have given us a lot of information. 
Um, we've also been running some surveys in those disciplines, asking st staff, and we're just about to launch some student surveys to get the student perception. And we will be publishing uh, seven reports, one for each of those discipline areas in the summer, and there will be dissemination of key findings. And there will be an overarching report bringing it together with some key recommendations. But what I want to do today is to give you uh, some sort of three uh, takeaway messages of the early findings that we're finding. And what we found, especially around those transition events where we're bringing lecturers and teachers together, there's a genuine recognition of a lack of understanding between the sectors. And when people take up their uh, academic job in a university, as their career progresses, their knowledge of the secondary sector gets further and further away over time. And it's hard to keep up with your own sector, let alone changes in A-level and um, all that's going on in another sector. So when we brought the academics and the teachers together, there was genuine um, you know, amazement about what changes have been on, and, and it was a really good exchange of information. And another understanding is some people teaching some subjects, like people teaching A-level psychology or, or different subjects, they never went to university and did a degree in that subject, so they can't properly explain to the students applying what it's like to go to university and do a degree in psychology and what skills you'll need, because a lot of the teachers are being asked to teach subjects at A-level that they're actually, they didn't study so at a degree level. So there's a lack of support there that can be given because they don't have that knowledge themselves. So um, the feedback we've had so far that these events are bringing and creating discussion between the two sectors is a really helpful dialogue and can really maybe help us, help the students make that transition because they are the people that we're trying to help is the students. And there is also... A uh, question about, I think, that's been said before by the previous speakers of where the problem lies on the mathematical ability of uh, students doing degrees, and they, each sector blames the, uh, the sector before uh, or the level before. So, uh, and that was true what we found from this. A big, um, a second finding I want to explain to you is about student confidence. Lots of discussion around maths anxiety. We've got lots of students in higher education who are very anxious about the term, if just the word mathematics. They choose modules and pathways through degrees to avoid mathematics. And we need to make sure that we're empowering them not to, you know, to be confident about taking maths, not avoiding maths. A uh, huge uh, requirement to develop student confidence and a huge problem with coping, coping with a wide spectrum of ability. So that's... You know, for me, one of the strong takeaway messages is building student confidence. And uh, I think that's been said in this morning's panel and here. And, and what has also been said, but really is supported by all our findings, is maths and statistics in context. Real life problems, real what they're at, how they're going to um, use that. So when they've been taught the A-levels, they can't take what they've been taught and apply it to chemistry or apply it to geography. They can't translate and transfer their skills. So flexibility, transferability, and the confidence to give these things a go So in real life. So they're my three takeaway messages. Is, this, is about creating discussion and communication between sectors, building confident students, and teaching maths and statistics in context and empowering students to be able to have a go at university at problems 
and not to avoid maths and that. So thank you very much. Right, we now have about 15 minutes to discuss this. Um, anybody want to start in any particular direction? Um, yes, there, followed by there, down the third row back, and then behind you again, Joan, after this gentleman, uh, Dr. Abramsky. Uh, Jack Abramsky. Um, it's really a question based on what Charlie Strip said, and it's to Janet. Why can't the universities start demanding that students post-16 going through the last years of school must do some maths to cope with their university courses? It's really fundamental. Yeah. I think that universities need to clearly articulate the requirement in their degrees, and that in turn will articulate the requirement for post-16 involvement or use of maths in some context. So if, if the actual mathematical content of the degree is clear across a whole spectrum of degrees, you know, the whole, you know, that would really help that message. Well, of course, if they're autonomous institutions and nobody can tell them what to do. Yes. Uh, Carl Hayward-Bradley, Warwick School. Uh, one of the things, it's along the same lines, actually. One of the problems that we find uh, is that Russell Group universities tend to require a certain level of grades, so A's, A-stars, that sort of thing. A lot of people who are scraping a B at GCSE really struggle to go to even get a B at A-level, so they might get a C or a D. So that tends to mean that they rule themselves out of going to one of these Russell Group universities. So if the universities require them to do some mathematics, then they need to take account of that in their entry requirements. And then back there. Mike Ellicott from National, Numer uh, National Numeracy. I um, very strongly agree with Mark's... Um, blog, and I see you changed some of the language, Mark, which is good of you. And just to build on um, Charlie's point um, about the GCSE, I think one of the starkest um, findings from the Skills for Life survey from 2011 was that of those that were surveyed that did get A star to C at GCSE, only 34% of them are still working at level two. And of the youngest cohorts, it's only 24%. So the point Charlie made about further study um, is also, it seems that GCSE isn't a good preparation for functional maths and life as well. Okay, and then in the middle there, sir. Sorry, it's me again. Um, Dan Thomas, still Cambridge Centre for Sixth Form Studies. Um, I teach at level three, and this is sort of linking in with a lot of what a few people have said both earlier and now. Um, I get learners onto my A-level maths course for whom A-level maths is not an appropriate course. They've got their C at GCSE, um, but the statistics produced by Cambridge Assessment um, say that if you've got a B at GCSE, the odds are you're going to go on to get a U at A-level. So these are students who want to go on to do exactly the subjects you're talking about, the psychology, the sociology, um, so we talk about the need for a mathematical competency at above GCSE. For me, and the students I'm seeing, that isn't A-level maths. We need to look at a course offer which is going to meet those needs. And I'm aware these things are in development and it's all policy-driven and everything else. Um, but for me as a teacher, following my management team, trying to persuade them that we need an offer which isn't A-level maths, for those learners who 
want to go on to maths requiring subjects, it's a course offer thing for me. I don't know if anybody can respond to that. Sorry, just, just before Charlie comes in there, when you say A-level, are you talking about the whole A-level or are you, in, are you incorporating things like an AS as well as an Even an AS. Even an AS. Um, I've got a learner in my group who is very keen to go on to uh, study psychology. Um, we have a psychology teacher who is recognising the importance of experimental methods but isn't that confident in the mathematics. Um, the learner herself recognises that she will need it at degree level. Mm. AS maths, the core particularly, yeah. C2 is beyond her. Fair enough. Yeah, Charlie. I think that um, you're right to mention that there are new sort of um, qualifications being developed in, in, in maths at level three, which are aimed at exactly the type of student that you're talking about. The key point about them, or the key, the key worry for me, is that in order for them to be successful and to have proper uptake, then there needs to be universities saying, we want these qualifications, we recognise them. There also needs to be recognition within the senior management teams of institutions that these are valid qualifications that, that you know, carry appropriate funding and appropriate sort of um, status. And, you know, if you don't have all of those things, they will fail. But, you know, there's definitely a very clear demand for these things. We can't make them, um, you know, th 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 there's no, no... Nobody seriously thinks about making AS and A-level maths easier because, actually, for some students, they're all, they're, you could argue they're already too easy. What we need is a different type of qualification, but that qualification has to have appropriate status in, you know, institutions that want to offer it and in university and amongst young people to make them want to choose it. And trying to get all those things to happen at once is going to be difficult, but we've got to try to do that. Aren't we running into Mark's point about everybody's blaming everybody else? So we've got some HE people in the audience. Uh, do, do, do they agree their institutions should be sending clearer signals? Yes. Um, I think we'll, this is the argument we've just had forever, and we're going to have it forever. You know, it, it, industry's always going to say the people coming out of school can't do the kind of mathematics we want them to do. University's always going to say they can't do the mathematics we can't we want them to do because the bits that we try and fix are those crucial points. So 15, 16, 17, 18 year olds. It isn't going to work. It hasn't worked. It will never work unless you fix it at the point where they're coming into schooling so that by the time they get to age 15, by the time they get to age 18, there is no reason why anyone being born today can't be a mathematician or can't be whatever they want to be and apply mathematics. But if we keep this debate concentrated on how we're going to sort out the GCSEs or the A-levels, it will just go on forever and ever. I think, I think we'd all agree with that, um, which takes you to a rather useful question coming in from outside from, from uh, one of our people, actually, a research officer at Cambridge Assessment, saying, um, is, is what needs to be done, particularly at primary school then, where maths is taught mostly by non-specialists, um, that would help us to address the shortcomings that you're, that you're talking about? Do you actually... I mean, does a non-specialist, uh, are they more likely to, to be more, make maths more interesting or are they more likely to not be as secure in that themselves and pass on that insecurity further down? It, it's about having at your disposal the, the means for getting children to be uh, to, to master certain concepts. It's not about being interesting or fun or anything like that. You, if you want a child to understand number sense or multiplication, you need to know what those models are, and you need to know how to communicate those models, and you need to know how to work with a child. 
I'm not sure what today's figure is, but um, certainly recently the figure was around about 23, 24% of all of the people teaching mathematics. And there are about half a million people teaching mathematics in all its guises in England uh, from cradle to grave. And of the people teaching mathematics, 23% of them have a post-16 mathematics qualification. Now, while, we're, while we have that situation, it's going to be really tricky to, to turn around um, the system because people need to be able to respond immediately. They need to know how to react to a child. They need to know, what things do I do that make it concrete in this child's mind, this conceptual understanding or whatever it is they're trying to overcome? Then the question I'm asking the audience is, how do you overcome that, given, uh, as we heard uh, on the IFS, is that if you... Uh, the more secure you are in the mass, the higher up you go, uh, as it were, the, 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 the higher up the system you go in being good at maths, the more likely you are to be attracted out of teaching um, and into uh, jobs that pay substantially more, uh, even though they may be slightly riskier. Um, so how do you actually attract people back, in, you know, people with those post-16 qualifications to actually do the teaching when, if I may say so, it's people like yourself, Mark, who are attracting the mathematicians into your company and taking them out (laughs) to do do other things. I'm only stealing really bad ones. (laughs) (laughs) That's all right, though. Um, But it's a a genuine question. uh, You've all got your own pathways into this. Um, uh, Some of you are staying in education. Some of you have moved out of education. Some of you moved in and out of education. Um, you know, who has ideas about how to do this? Yes, Professor. Uh, if you could stand, stand up for our foreign... Uh, thank you, and it's not a really flippant answer. I think the trouble is really salary structure. I think the primary school teacher should be paid highest and the professor the lowest. And that way you will see, if you run it for 10 years and it's an experiment you'll find that the, you know, the best teachers are really teaching and not going for administrative jobs. Thank you. By all means. One of the things I also do is I'm, I'm chairman of the Teacher Development Trust. Um, 40,000 entrants into the profession each year. Uh, within the first five years, most of these people are leaving. And people don't leave teaching because of pay. Now, you know, when, when you have level of pay at a reasonable level and you can get by and everything's okay, pay is not an issue. And I I would say at the moment, teaching pay is fine. People leave teaching because of conditions. It's nothing to do with pay. So it's about making the conditions better, and that's about challenging school leadership and challenging uh, the offset regime and challenging the department. Yes, there in the middle. Uh, Simon Nevis, Cambridge Assessment. Um, I'm not sure it's a precise analogy, but I've been very struck travelling around the the world. We also do a lot of English language testing, and we're um, increasingly coming across um, national governments or local municipalities um, aiming to improve standards of English language learning in in primary schools across the world. And they don't have teachers who are particularly good at English. Often the teachers are only three or four lessons ahead of the kids there teaching, but what they're doing is they're putting in very heavy-duty national municipal programs to train people up, breaking the subject down, making it much easier. So, so taking the um, figure Mark gave of only 25% of, of people teaching maths being graduates, it's not clear, in, in, certainly in, in looking at how English language um, is taught, that you necessarily need graduates if you're approaching teacher training and development properly, and if there's proper resource and, and methodical involvement 
of the system as a whole in trying to develop these skills. So I don't know whether the analogy will work precisely, but I certainly think there are lessons there to be learned that are, are worth thinking about. Uh, just down here at the very front, uh, in the second row. Uh, David Somerville, I do work for the NCETM, amongst other organisations. I've met quite a few people in my travels, primary teachers, who've done the maths specialist teacher programme, two-year programme, intensive, focusing on some of the deep conceptual areas that have been talked about. Those people I've met have clearly been transformed uh, in, in, in their ability to teach mathematics and the way we've been discussing today. I'd be interested in, in any views any of you have or in, anyone else has, has got um, about that program, its success, and, and whether that should be the number one priority in terms of reaching the kind of state that, Mark, you are saying we need to aspire to. Is that Sorry, if you just hold on to that for a moment. Is it, it, so that's presumably almost to the opposite of what Simon's just been saying. That's ground up. You, you choose to go on it Yes. in order to progress in your career as opposed to a sort of state-centric, here's a brilliant idea, if you want to get on, we'll give it Well, the, the initial aim of the project was to have one person in every primary school as a math specialist, with very small schools, perhaps a federation approach. That was the initial, uh, one of the initial aims. Yeah. Right, okay. We're not getting a lot from this side of the room. I keep looking over here. They're all very quiet over here. Um, Anybody want to pick up on any of those? I mean, I find it interesting that we, um, you know, we, we, we are still talking about maths as a whole here and just thinking about what you were talking about, statistics and all the rest of it. Um, oh, personal anecdote, my son is a, a maths genius, uh, unlike me, and I have no idea where he got it from. He doesn't regard statistics as maths. That's the tedious, boring stuff that you've got to do over there. Real mathematics is about unlocking the secrets of the universe, and you don't need statistics for that. Uh, he's clearly picking that up from somewhere at school, and I have heard other mathematicians say similar things. Uh, Tony, yes. Tony Gardner, Birmingham. I think putting the last two things together, um, no political gimmick is going to get us out of our logjam. We've actually got to believe that mathematical ability is much more widely spread than we have traditionally accepted. We have taught badly, in bad structures, and we have produced cripples at the end of it. Increasingly large numbers of cripples, as Charlie showed us, which is a positive thing. But we've got to, be <laughs> but we've got to believe that you can deal with primary school more effectively by doing slightly less, but rather more effectively. We get to GCSE and get more people competent there. So they smile just like Lynn's Elissa when she's achieved something. They're still smiling at 16. We've got to believe you can get large numbers through. And if you get a large pool, then Bennett's problem disappears. Conrad can steal all the really good ones. Mark <laughs> can steal the next really good ones. And there are still <laughs> lots left for primary teaching and secondary teaching. And there we have it. Um... <laughs> Which, which interestingly, no, that interestingly takes us on to a question from uh, on Twitter from a Mark uh, Yarnell um, talking about China. Um, is there anything that China can teach us? Uh, making up twenty percent of the world's population, producing mathematicians um, by significantly larger thousands than we're producing here. Um, does anybody here have spent any time in China and looked at the way in which they teach? 
Is it simply the fact that they just expect more? Is it the fact that they're happy to put up with a wastage level that we might not put up with? Uh, are there just so many things to do in China that you can get by without doing maths? Yes. Um, obviously, I'm not Chinese, but I'm of Indian origin, and we often talk about China as well. And um, I think in those countries, basically, the teaching doesn't wholly um, rely on the teaching community. There's a lot of teaching which actually goes on in the household as well. So you'll probably find that these Chinese kids, and in fact the Singaporean and the Indian kids, have all their textbooks, maths textbooks, for the year ahead. They are discussing maths at home with their parents and their uncles, um, they're getting a lot of input and advice as well. They're doing exam papers at home. Um, I think people here would say, oh, it's put in the, putting them under pressure. But, I mean, that is the way to probably do it, really. I don't think, you know, they, they take it, they're totally immersed and awashed in it. And that's why I think they are quite successful. Which takes us neatly into fear of maths, maths anxiety. Almost everybody's mentioned maths anxiety. That's a, that's a cultural con construct. Um, uh, Cambridge International did a, a survey of some of their students worldwide, which uh, came to Indians, Chinese, most of Asia Pacific, um, actually all more significantly hated maths more than the West, but did significantly better at it. They hated it, but they knew it needed to be done. Again, a cultural construct, whereas in the West, this includes uh, uh, the United States, didn't like maths very much, but were actually better at it when they actually got down to it. Um, so is that, does that rest on the, on the maths anxiety? How do we overcome the maths anxiety? Is it the, the, the kind of maths teachers we're producing that's producing that anxiety, or because we're not producing enough maths teachers? Uh, is it the fact that some of you go into a classroom, you feel secure, and therefore the kids feel secure, they know, they think... You know what you're doing, um, or is it? Can we just blame it on NQTs who are just coming in and not feeling up to it? Over there. Gareth Fierce, WJEC. My period of teaching maths was actually in what you might call the Cockroft decade, and I'm just wondering on the point you've just raised whether three of the key themes in the Cockroft report, which predated GCSEs, actually touched on that because Cockroft was emphasising the recognition of a seven-year age span in terms of abilities within, within any year group, and therefore you needed to pitch your maths curriculum to reflect the anxieties of people at that complete end of the spectrum. And so your, your, uh, your year 10 group would, would have a very wide age, age span in it. But two of the other themes of Cockroft were the emphasis on practical work and investigative work. And the practical work was to give grounding in reality so there was less anxiety and a better understanding. And the investigative work so that the focus was not purely on getting things right through a, a given defined method. It was more exploratory. I remember at that time trying to drive our maths budget as a teaching department to be amongst the highest in the school. Why? Because we wanted some software, exploratory software. Uh, it was actually branded Smile. It was on the old BBC computers. And maths classes were the ones that had a compulsory year seven lesson in the computer lab every week. And they were very exploratory lessons.
And the only thing we as teachers did was to go around and have conversations with these pupils who were working in pairs with, with this software. We used to do trigonometry, like athletics, in the summer term because we'd be out there with uh, various devices for measuring angles so you could estimate the heights of buildings and so forth. You know, so that was the flavour of it. Um, I went into and out of teaching uh, in that era. I left teaching because I could see what was going to happen in the 90s when the national curriculum came in with all its bureaucracy. That open-ended approach to the mathematics curriculum, I think, suffered some serious blows, as did, I think, the professionalism of the teaching community and the support available for that mathematics teaching community. So I think, the, you know, reflecting back, I'm just showing my age, of course, but I think there were some real messages in what Cockroft tried to do in that major reform of the approach to maths education, which for a short time perhaps did have benefits. But I think we've lost those benefits some time back. So on, on that note, which is not, I think, necessarily about a golden age, but certainly about looking into the past to see if we can learn anything sensible for the future, which should be a, a very conservative viewpoint, of course, and a Liberal Democrat and Labour viewpoint. Um, so <laughs> things to take away from that. Now, um, I'm going to ask our uh, speakers to rapidly descend the stairs without uh, doing anything on the health and safety side. This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.